Let's just pray again as we come to look at God's word together. Father, once again as we prayed this morning, we ask that you would help us to be still and to know that you are God. Bless us, instruct us, and accomplish all your purposes through your word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bible, please do turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to look at this message that is very relevant in light of our historical moment. God save the king. This is a proclamation, or more accurately, a prayer for the new King Charles III that we've heard resounding out from so many different people since the death of Queen Elizabeth II. For many who utter this prayer, sadly it seems to be nothing more than a patriotic act of ceremonial correctness. Many people are saying, God save the king, but they don't even believe in God. For the Christian, though, according to the passage we're looking at this evening, this prayer can and should be something that is real and sincere. God save the king. 1 Timothy 2, 1-7 is a passage that explicitly calls us as Christians to pray, as verse 2 says, for kings and all who are in high positions. In fact, I don't think there's another passage in the Bible that so clearly calls us as Christians to pray a prayer like God save the king as this one. So in light of the historical moment, I thought it might be helpful for us to reflect on this passage and what it is actually calling us to as Christians. For when we take a step back from the passage and view it as a whole, we see that it calls us to do a lot more than just to pray for kings. This is actually a passage that calls us as Christians to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, because all kinds of people need to see him Savior. This is actually a really helpful, practical passage, because it clearly lays out one of our responsibilities as a local gathering of Christians here in the city center of Belfast. You see, in chapter 3, verse 14, the Apostle Paul states to this young man, Timothy, clearly why he is writing to him. If you look over there at chapter 3, verse 14 with me, Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul, Paul's saying, I'm hoping to come to you soon, give you loads of instructions as an apostle on how we're to behave and live and try to cultivate a Christ-centered gathering here in the city of Ephesus that Tim, Timothy was in. 
I'm going to give you all these instructions, but if I delay, I'm writing to you now so that you will know how we ought to behave in the household of God, how you get started in trying to cultivate a gospel-centered community there in your city. It is God's will that his church would be praying all kinds of prayers for all different kinds of people, and this passage teaches us that we're to do that because all kinds of people need the one Savior. There is no category of people in the world who do not need Jesus. There is no one above the need for salvation in Christ. And this simple statement that I'm going to make repeatedly gives us our roadmap for how we're going to work through this passage this evening. The first half of the passage, if you look at it there in verses 1 and 2, gives us this call to pray, all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. In the second part, verses 3 to 7, we see why we should do this. Because all kinds of people need saved by the only mediator between God and man, the Savior, the man, Christ Jesus. So first, let's look at the first two verses, this call to pray all kinds of prayer. Verse 1, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. Paul uses four different words for prayer here to call the church to be praying in lots of different ways. This is a simple instruction, but one that I think is worth reflecting on. We are called as Christians today to pray with variety. Imagine if you only ate the same meal for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I lived in a country, Madagascar, once where that was the case. The Malagasy ate rice for breakfast, rice for lunch, and rice for dinner. They had rice coming out of their ears, and it was a bit much for me. You soon get tired of that kind of diet, and if you pray the same old prayer every single day in the same way, you will eventually get tired of it. This passage calls us to variety in our prayer lives. I don't think we're to press too much the nuances of each word Paul uses for prayer, because the point is you're to pray all kinds of prayers. Now, I find the structure acts to be most helpful that gives me variety in my prayer life. I'm sure many of you know it, A-C-T-S, prayers of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. That's one way that we pray all kinds of prayers. We pray prayers of adoration and worship, confession of sin. We thank God for all the blessings he pours upon us, and we intercede for other people. But we don't just intercede in one way. We perhaps pray in lots of different ways for people. I'm sure some of you perhaps use lists. Some of you maybe use a little prayer guide produced by someone like Open Doors or Frontiers. Some of you perhaps find it really helpful to use written prayers, like a book of Puritan prayers called the Valley of Vision. Some of you might find that all a bit restricting and so you're like, I can't use lists, I can't use written prayers, I just need to go for it and pray and be led by the Spirit in a wonderful way. And all of this is wonderful because we are called here in this passage as Christ's people to pray supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. We're called to pray all kinds 
of prayers. Thinking of how you can actually bring variety into your prayer life can add real freshness to your prayer life. I've recently started to use written prayers. So I shared a wee while back John Stott's Morning Trinitarian Prayer. I have been finding that so helpful if I'm tired and I feel like I'm lacking creative energy or energy to pray. Sometimes I'll just meaningfully take that Trinitarian Prayer and I'll just read through it. I have some other written prayers that I use. I find the Lord's Prayer very helpful to just work through it and take my time with it if I'm finding it again difficult to muster up that energy to pray in in a creative way. Some of you might find it very helpful to experiment with writing prayers. I did this for a time and I found it helpful. I've kind of fallen away from it a little bit and I'm using other lists now and things like that. But some of you might find it really helpful just to to write down things. Some of you might find it helpful just to take certain prayers from Scripture and pray them. I think this passage calls us to something very simple, but that can be very life-giving for us in our prayer lives. Pray all kinds of prayers. Think of how you can pray in fresh ways, with fresh variety. Try something new, perhaps, to add some life to your prayer life. One little observation before moving on that you could easily miss. Notice how this call to prayer starts with the words in verse 1, first of all, then. The moment you read that, first of all, then, you should be thinking, oh, he's saying this now in light of something he's just said. So, first of all, then, in light of what I've just said, do this, pray, all kinds of prayers. So you have to then ask, well, what did he just say? And back in chapter 1, verse 18, we see Paul has been instructing Timothy and his recipients on how they can, look at his language, wage a good warfare, holding solid faith and a good conscience. Now, he's not looking for physically Christian militants to go out and fight in the city of Ephesus. No, he's speaking of spiritual warfare here. He's thinking, here's how you can be a good church in the city that you're in in Ephesus. Here's how you can wage a good spiritual warfare and fight the battle for the Lord. Do you remember how later writing to Timothy, Paul would say, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. And he said he was ready now to go home and receive his crown to go home to the Lord. So if you want to wage a good warfare as a Christian personally, if we want to wage a good warfare here in the city that we've been called to, we've got to be praying all kinds of prayers. But as we'll see, this is not just a call to pray all kinds of prayer. It's a call to pray all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, something we need to do early here is establish how this little word, all, is being used in the passage because it appears several times and is the key to understanding Paul's flow of thought. Verse 1, he urges prayer to be made for all people. Verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions. In verse 4, he speaks of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. And in verse 6, he speaks of Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, what does Paul have in mind when he uses this word all in the passage? There are two options. Number one, Paul has in mind all 
individuals without exception. We're to pray for every individual exhaustively. Is that what he means? Here's the second option. Paul is using the word all to refer to all kinds of people. Prayer is to be made for all kinds of people. And it is clearly the second use of all that is in view throughout this passage. And the main reason we can state that so confidently is that in verse 1, Paul calls for prayer to be made for all people. And then straight away in verse 2, he gives two categories or kinds of people as an example of what he's calling for. In verse 1, he's saying, I want you to make all kinds of prayers. In verse 2, for all kinds of people. Here are two of the kinds of people you should be praying for, for kings and others in high positions. Why does that kind of people come to his mind when he's calling the people to pray? Because he's writing to Timothy about the kinds of things that will help the church to settle and flourish and be faithful in the work of making disciples in the city. Paul knows that prayers for leaders will be strategic because it is leaders who will provide the conditions for the church to flourish in her mission or to meet opposition in her mission. Remember, Paul is thinking of how we can wage a good warfare. Here's his strategy. He says we're to pray for all people. Here are the kinds of people we want to be thinking specifically about praying for. Let's pray for kings and governors because they will provide the stable government that will allow us to get on with our mission in sharing the knowledge of the truth with all people. He says we're to pray for these kings and leaders that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, that we may live out gospel-shaped lives in our city. In verse 3, he says this is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul is saying God is a heart for all the kinds of people that make up our city and our land. The high, the low, the rich, the poor. God has a heart for all kinds of people. The natives of Belfast, the blow-ins like myself, the foreigners, the settled, the refugees, the Catholics in the city, the Protestants in the city, the politicians, the civil servants, the street sweepers, the retail managers, the students, the homeless, Sandy Row community, markets community the growing China land that has become Donegal Pass. God has a heart for all the different kinds of people in this city. So we must pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people because God wants all kinds of people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We are to pray that those in positions of influence will not govern in such a way as to hinder the advancement of the gospel. And to illustrate how this kind of hindrance can happen, I want to share an example from a prayer letter I received a few years back from some friends who are church planters in a particular city that I'll not name in France. 
Here's what my friends wrote. Clearly, our most pressing material need in our city right now is a larger space for our Sunday meetings. The lack of help and indeed the resistance of the local, civil, and religious authorities are becoming a real hindrance to our growth. Pressure has been applied to the association currently renting us a small meeting room, and we will have to stop meeting there by early April. Please pray earnestly for a providential door to open quickly. So there you see, there's church planters in a city in France, and they're trying to get a space to meet, and they're saying we're, we're experiencing a hindrance because of the civil and religious authorities who are opposing us. And that's why we pray for our governors, for our leaders, that they would govern in such a way that brings about peaceful conditions, that we can live faithful Christian lives and be free to share the gospel with all kinds of people across our city because God wants all kinds of people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We're called to make all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. And let me just step back and ask a question. How are you involved in this effort? How are you praying for your leaders? Is that on your radar? Is it part of your prayer life? Is it part of our prayer life as a congregation as we gather on Wednesdays, on Sundays, and at different times in small groups? I'm really encouraged that part of me says, yes, absolutely. We, we pray continually for our government, for our leaders. We seek to pray for those who are in authority over us. I'm, I will always remember you, Sue, praying in our prayer meeting, giving thanks to God for the freedom that we enjoy to meet in this way. That's wonderful, and let's keep trying to do that more and more. For as you know, you know as well as I know, we're under pressure in Northern Ireland. More and more laws are being passed that could restrict our freedom in sharing the gospel. So let's pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, namely our governing authorities. This means the prayer, God save the king, is a biblical prayer. We should say, pray God save the king and mean it. We should pray God save Michelle O'Neill, our first minister. We should pray God save Michal Martin. God save Liz Truss. This is at least part of the variety of prayers we should be offering to our God. We're the spiritual leaders of our city. We're called to lead and move our city in a Godward direction, to be the conscience of our culture, to be the interceders praying for our city. We are called in this passage to take this responsibility seriously, both as we gather corporately and in our individual Christian lives. Why should we pray for conditions that open the way for the gospel to be shared with all kinds of people? Well, that's what Paul goes on to unpack even more fully in the next part of the passage. And essentially, he's saying we should pray all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people because all kinds of people need the same salvation that is found in Jesus Christ alone. That's where he goes in verse 5. For, here's why you should do this, for, because there's one God, 
and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is no category of people anywhere in the whole world that this text is not true for. Think about that. There's no one outside of that who you would say, well, that applies to, you know, those people and those people and those people, but see that tribe over there, it doesn't apply to them. They actually have a different true high God and a different way to that God. Let's be really clear. There are not many gods out there. We can tend to think sometimes in terms of the God of Islam, the God of Hinduism, or the many gods of Hinduism, the gods of many religions out there. Today, the world sees spirituality like a big shopping mall. Just go and choose your God, whatever works for you. All roads in the end lead the same way. Pick your path. Sure, it's all just wishful thinking, really, anyway. That seems to be the spirit of our age. You know, this actually concerns me about the direction, and I say this gently, the direction that our own monarchy is moving in. You'll read on the monarchy's website today that though the monarch has a special relationship with the Church of England as its head, the sovereign recognizes and celebrates other faiths. Now, I get it. Political correctness demands that kind of statement today. But that sort of language should concern us as Christians. We can respect others' worldviews and religions, but I wouldn't want my name on anything that would say I'm celebrating other faiths. You want exclusivity emerging out of the naive, pluralistic mush that we have floating around today? This verse gives it to us. I love the clarity in the Bible when it comes to things like this. There is one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. There are not many gods and many ways to those gods. There are not many spiritualities and many right paths. Whatever works for you, if it feels good, do it. There is one God who has created all things. Everything else is in the category of created. There is one God who rules over all, one God who will judge all, and there is one hope for every person in this world, whatever their socio-ethnic, linguistic group they're in. That hope is found in Jesus Christ, the hope of the nations, the only hope for every single person that has ever lived, the only hope for every tribe, every language group, every people group, every class of people in this city, whether they are lying on the street tonight or whether they're sitting in the biggest house in Belfast. Different kinds of people, one savior, one hope for all. And verse six tells us how this hope was provided for us. It was this Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. You see, all people were under the just wrath of God. Jesus came to give himself for our sins so that the way could be opened for us to come back to God without being consumed. In verses 6 and 7, Paul says, this is the testimony, the message that was appointed, that he was appointed to preach, not just to his own people, 
the Jews, but to Gentiles. That is the ethne in Greek, the ethnic peoples of this world, nations outside of Israel who can only find salvation in this Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what drove Paul in his mission. He was a Jewish man, but he knew that there were other sheep who were not of his sheepfold who must be brought in from the nations to find hope in Jesus Christ. When we went to Madagascar, we were under the care and oversight of our local church at the time, but we were also sent through the mission agency AIM. And the story of Peter Cameron Scott, the founder of AIM, is stirring. This man, Peter Cameron Scott, was born in Glasgow in 1867. His beginnings in Africa were anything but hope-filled. His first trip out to Africa ended in a severe attack of malaria. He got so sick he nearly died and he had to go home. He resolved back at home to return to Africa after he recuperated. This return was especially um, gratifying for him because his brother John joined him this time and the two of them went out in the late 19th century to try and reach Africans for Christ. But he was hardly out for a long time at all before his brother John was struck down by a fever and he died. All alone, Peter Cameron Scott buried his brother, but in the agony of those days, he recommitted himself to keep preaching the gospel in Africa. But his health gave way again under the pressure of loneliness, brokenness, and he could do no more. He had to return to England. He was wondering how he would pull himself out of the desolation and depression of those days. He had pledged himself to God, but how could he ever find the strength to go back to Africa where he had experienced such brokenness? Well, he went into Westminster Abbey, where the Queen's funeral will be tomorrow, where there is a tombstone with the name David Livingstone on it. The great explorer who himself uh, became uh, a wonderful missionary, serving and proclaiming Christ. Peter Cameron Scott found David Livingstone's tomb and he knelt down there beside it to pray. And I don't know if you've been there. I've stood there at that stone and I've seen the inscription that is written on Livingstone's tomb from John 10, 16, where Jesus said these words, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Peter Cameron Scott in that moment found those words quickened by the Spirit to his heart and he rose from his knees with a new hope. He returned to Africa. And today, the mission he founded is a vibrant, growing force continuing to bring the gospel to the unreached peoples of Africa with a renewed effort in this last 20 years or so to reach the hardest parts of Africa. North Africa, the Muslim peoples 
who used to be Christian peoples. You see, Jesus gave himself for all kinds of people so that all kinds of people would find their way back to him, back to God and him. And here's the beautiful thing. We are part of this mission of seeing the sheep that are not yet in the sheepfold being brought in. We have to hope that there are many sheep scattered around Belfast who are not yet in the fold. And when we go to them with the gospel, God will quicken that gospel to their hearts by his spirit and they will hear his voice and they will come. That gives us the hope to go out. It's the power of God and the power of the gospel that brings the lost sheep in. I love that we're part of this mission. We go to inner city areas. Patty's sent me an email recently with plans to go out again to the doors and Sandy Row and the markets areas to go into the city and stand outside the hotels and just talk to anyone we can talk to about Jesus. I wonder, could you get involved with that when the time's right? I know it's scary, I know it's difficult, but maybe that would be one way you could respond to this message. A couple of years ago, I remember going to businesses, pubs, even the Grand Opera House with Eric Lindsay. And the two of us were inviting people to our carol service. And I remember you wore this wee, you know, this hat, and he used to say to me, you know, when you've lost the thatch, you need something to keep the heat in. Many of you don't know Eric, but Eric was one of our elders, and he passed away a few years back. He went home to the Lord. But I remember taking Eric into the bars down the road. I don't think he'd ever been in them in his life. And we went with, with these invitations to just invite people to come. It was brilliant. Think of the different ways this church has been involved in this mission down through the years. Even now, isn't it wonderful? We're seeing this resurgence of people who are interested in going for the sake of the name. Just think of Shane taking the gospel to Portugal. Think of the ministry to children that we're involved in. Even though the beginnings may be small, they're meaningful. Think of the Bounce Holiday Bible Club in the summer and those little children, different kind of people in our city who need the same savior that that, that every other kind of person needs in Belfast. Think of our opportunities. On a Sunday evening, thousands of students come up into the city center. Think of the opportunities we have to get among them. It doesn't matter what the background or status, all people need Christ, and we're here to pray that all people will come to Christ. So God save the king. That's a biblical prayer. God save the first minister. God save Sandy Rowe. God save the markets. God save business leaders. Save refugees. Save the homeless. Save the wealthy. Save the atheists. Save the Muslims. Save the Hindus. Save the Roman Catholics. Save the Protestants. God save Belfast. In closing, did you notice how this whole passage presupposes that prayer is a vital component in seeing all people come to a saving knowledge of the truth. You can almost miss that, and yet that is the big, obvious point at the background of the passage. The whole thing's a call to prayer, so that all kinds of people would come to be saved. Do you remember what Jesus said? The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray. I think we underestimate the centrality and the instrumentality of prayer in the purposes of God to save people. 
That's why I've been so encouraged. I'm telling you, I said to someone last week after our prayer meeting, you know, any pastor would be encouraged sitting, listening to his people pray the way we prayed on Wednesday night. Any pastor would long to have the people pray like that for revival, for the power of God to move, for Christian maturity, for growth and grace. When, when I asked for people to share about the different gospel conversations that are happening, it's just like hand was going up, hand was going up, hand was going up, and we were praying for people that were having opportunities to speak to. It is wonderful. It's encouraging. Let's keep doing it. Prayer. Here's where the real strategy of waging a good warfare begins. And that's why Paul begins here. First of all then, I urge that you would pray all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people, for all kinds of people need the same Savior. This text calls on us and wants to elicit bigger and broader prayers for all kinds of people. Let's begin by praying more this year for our government. Pray for our government to become reestablished, that an executive would get up and running again. Let's pray that our government would pass good laws that would enable us to live, as the passage says, quiet lives that are godly and dignified in every way, so that we would be able to conduct our ministry to the glory of God. When you hear people tomorrow or whenever it is say those words, God save the king, let it be a trigger that sets something off in your heart where you utter your own prayer to God and say, yes, Lord, save the king. Save our leaders. I want to be part of that people praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people because all kinds of people need you. We're going to respond now by doing that for a moment. At eight o'clock, our nation has been called to fall silent for a moment of remembrance in light of the Queen's death. I want to take this moment and fill it with significance for us this evening. In a moment's silence, let's be praying, God save the King. Let's pray tomorrow as millions watch this funeral. Let's pray for the Dean of Westminster and the Archbishop of Canterbury. Let's pray that something of the Word of God and the Gospel would go forth and that God would take the simple biblical truths and Gospel, whatever it is, take a little drop of truth in all the pageantry and everything else and maybe make it powerful by the Spirit to save people across the world. So let's just be still for a moment. Let's take time to reflect with our nation, but let's fill our God save the King with meaning. Let's be still for a moment, and then I'll lead us in a prayer.
Father, thank you for your word, this instruction, how we are to behave as the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of truth. And here the emphasis in this passage is that we would be a praying people. So we take this opportunity to pray for the king. We pray for our first minister, Michelle O'Neill. We pray for the deputy first minister, for Jeffrey. We pray for all the other governors and leaders in our land. We pray, Father, that you would give us good leaders who govern with integrity and justice. We pray, Father, that there would be religious freedom in our land, a healthy pluralism that allows us to continue to meet freely, to worship you, and to share the hope that is ours with all kinds of people in this city. We pray, Father, for tomorrow, as millions of people across the world will tune in to this moment of mortality on display. We pray, Father, that there would be gospel truth proclaimed that tomorrow would become an incredible opportunity for the gospel to shine. And we pray, Father, that you would save people through what happens tomorrow. For, Father, when we are confronted with the reality of our mortality, often we think of our own death. Cause people to think of their death and to tremble before you. Convict people of sin as they watch. Awaken their consciences awaken and open their eyes and hearts to their need of Christ, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. One hope, one savior for every kind of person that will tune in tomorrow. Father, we don't pray for kings and governors because we're Protestants or Catholics or one uh, religious group or other. No, we pray this way because we're Christians and you call us to do so in your word. So we pray, God, save the king. We pray that you would save our political leaders here in Northern Ireland. We pray that you would save the political leaders in the Republic of Ireland. We pray, Father, that you would move powerfully by your spirit to revive our land, that we would see people from all colors and creeds and classes coming to find the hope there is in Christ alone. In Christ alone, our hope is found. And we pray that in these days, many more would come to share that hope. We pray for this, Father, because we know that prayer is how you move your mighty arm. And we ask that you would move your mighty arm to save in these days. Give us the joy of seeing it, Lord, and being part of it. We believe you have other sheep that are wandering about the city tonight, and they're not yet in the fold of the family of God. Oh, Lord, send us to them. Get us to the right places and the right people that you're already at work in. And we pray, Father, that as we speak that gospel, you would speak through it and call people irresistibly to yourself. 
for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to stand and respond with the words of that hymn, In Christ Alone Our Hope Is Found. Here is the hope for the nations. Let's stand and praise God together.
may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine on you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace.